when you deploy an OKR and you don't have that sense of impact and that sense of a made a difference, it automatically falls into I am measured on something and it 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 adds on pressure instead of doing something positive. So, and I think that's that that was the experience that we had. It, it was just like adding on pressure. Hi, and welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, VP of Product Marketing at GTM Hub. Our mission is to prevent organizational hypocrisy. Inspired by the proven objectives and key results goal-setting methodology, GTM Hub offers the most flexible results management system for mission-driven organizations. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. Caroline joins me on today's episode of Dreams with Deadlines. She's the founder and CEO of Uppercut First, a consultancy for startup founders. She's the author of Popcorn for the New CEO and a regular columnist for Maddiness UK. We talk about her writings on this episode, one titled I've Never Felt This Awake, an op-ed piece where she opens up about her experiences of being a woman in tech. We also chat about the leanest and most effective way to begin setting goals via a value pyramid and how to increase the probability of OKR program success. Let's jump in. So I'm really excited today because I get to talk to Caroline, who I have her book. I've been reading it. So how do you get to all of this stuff? Because you own your own business now. You've been in corporate America. It sounds like you've, you understand the startup scene how did what can you share a little bit about your journey to owning your own business, running your own show? I've, I've had a, a career led by opportunities that I just grabbed. So I took the first job out of school, just wanted to pay the bills, and it was in tech. And then just a lot of grit to do more and more and progress rapidly. So we moved from computer associate to Oracle to Magic Graphics. And then grit led me to a job in the US really wanted to work abroad and then just learn some more and learn the culture and discover a new world that I didn't know about. And then when I came back, I had the chance to work with a company that helped me a lot in growing professionally with exceptional, talented people at BMC. And then after that, it was a great, it was a great experience. It was a great family, but you know, this grit that I had in my stomach still wanted more, always wanted more. And the startup word is, is that I think complete alignment with the person that I am, which is hyperactive. I'm a hyperactive. So fast pace is basically the pace that is mine. And the startup word just works totally fine. And Sprinkler was an amazing adventure. And really just like the, the 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 plunge into the startup world. And then after that, I did another two startups like Datadog and Confluent. And I guess I never had enough because I was always in sales, sales leadership, and I wanted to touch everything. I wanted to have my hands on the product, on the product roadmap. I wanted to have my hands on the strategy. I wanted to think like a CEO. So having created my company as as in software as a service company, but I've created my company where I can work alongside CEOs of European startups in defining their go-to-market strategy, market fit, and such. So something that hasn't been published yet, 
I got the the great privilege of being able to read it ahead of time. And it's something top of mind for me since I've been reading a lot about diversity and inclusivity recently for work as well as for my own personal education. There are people who've been working in this field for over 30 years, and it's starting to gain a lot of mainstream attention to the extent where now we're seeing chief diversity officers rise at the executive ranks of some really well-known large-scale global companies. And you're in the middle of writing this piece for Maddiness about women in the tech industry without giving away too much content, because obviously we want people to read it. What are some of the high-level points that you want people to be able to take away from this? What do you want them to know? I, I think it's a very personal piece for me, which is very, very different from everything. I mean, you've read the book. It's it's all business first, right? And it's a, it's really grounded not just in my experience, but other people's experience, a woman experience in the field. So it's kind of a, a raw subject. And I mean, I, I am trying at the end of the piece to give some advice to the business, right? I'm, I'm trying to give some areas and I think it's just not one area. I think there are a lot of areas. There, there's, there's woman ownership to go and get that confidence and that power. And when I say woman, it's, it's, it could be any minority really, because this piece is not supposed to be just about women in the industry, right? But it's supposed to be about anybody feeling not so included, let's just say. And it's just to, to feel that confidence that you have in you and your and the power to to do the things that you're capable of doing. And that I think that's the first step, really, just to, to be the owner of what you're capable of doing and not be scared or not be undermined by any comment or any pushback or any rejection. And then, then there is like the overall ecosystem. And when it comes to a startup, the ecosystem of a startup is almost as powerful as the inside leadership of the startup. So it can go from advisors to investors to board members to just like partners. All of these people have a say in um, the type of people they're presenting and sourcing. If someone's asking for a VP of sales, well, you go naturally to, you know, the white male, or will you look into more diversity for that startup because that startup needs needs it? And I was talking to VC this morning who said they're in, they're very early investors, and he said to me, Caroline, if the first twenty five people are white boys male we know we're going to have tremendous difficulty in changing the game for that startup on the subject of diversity and inclusion. So they're doing it from the very, very, very beginning, before the seed, before they're starting hiring developers. Like, have you considered women developers? Have you looked everywhere? Have you really done the, the work to just, like, expand? And so... This is the, the, the three three main areas of actions, I would say. The ecosystem, the leadership, and obviously as a minority to kind of own your worth. And so the support goes goes further, I think. There's work to be done definitely from the onset where you're creating your organization, but then certainly thereafter to make sure that everybody has an equal opportunity for success. That's what we're trying 
to establish is that they have that opportunity. And by virtue of that, then the entire organization would benefit because they have diversity in thought. And that's great, right? Now to that end, you sent, like you shared with me something that I was like totally, I don't know, caught off guard. I did not know this. The World Economic Forum, Forum created this global gender gap report. And they've released that very recently, I guess. And one key insight was that as we consider the impact of COVID-19, we have now assessed that there will be another generation of women. It will take another generation before women get gender parity. So now we're looking at 135 years as opposed to 99. Which was already a lot. (laughs) It was already a lot to close that gender gap in the workplace. And it's just, I think it's really hard to wrap my mind around that. And I want to bring us closer in. So like, do you have kind of some, some things that you can share about with our audience, like setbacks, like, and they don't necessarily have to be personal, but certainly things that we have observed are common, common situations where there, there is just, I don't know, for whatever reason, like that gap is, is there and, and we need to recognize it. Like, do you have some examples for us to kind of bring this statistic into something that is more tangible for the common person? So I think there are two things. The one thing in the study is that they they do figure out that the woman had to kind of step out from whatever their jobs or to get take care of the kids. But I'm I'm still confused on the why. Uh, and and this is like is this a is this like a, a norm? Is this you know we we're 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 we've just been raised to step in or what 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 is it? And then the productivity, I think this is a well explained. There are tons of studies on that which explains to leaders, and I, I, I can't stress this enough, this, this any leader who is listening to this, be very careful. Working from home and confinement is not the same thing. It is very different when a company allows the employees to either choose to work from home or work from the office or or have like some sort of balance between both hybrid version, which I know Google and Facebook and Salesforce are, are putting in place. But it is very different when your kids are going to school in the morning, when you can go to your sports room at noon, when you have a balanced life. And what we've been through since one year, it's, it's absolutely normal, whether you have kids or not, that your productivity is not the same. In fact, what concerns me the most is that productivity should have gone down and it hasn't. And that's what concerns me the most is that productivity has in some areas remained the same in some other areas increased. And when it comes to sales, what I'm really, really nervous about is some American VC saying, wow, this is really cool because before we were asking eight meaningful meetings and here goes your OKR connection, right? Eight like metrics, eight meaningful meetings per rep per week. Well, if you look into what's happening, it's like we're almost at six to eight meetings per day now because yes, I, like I know many people who do five to eight meetings a day 
and this is not healthy. You can't prepare well. You can't deliver well. Your brain doesn't take break. But what happens is that productivity should have gone down with the situation in which we've been, and it has gone up because we are always on. And the situation that's completely, it needs to be taken care of by the leadership. It needs to be, you know, we're talking about corporate objective and such. The business strategies don't burn your people because that can cost you a lot. You want balance, you want happiness. I had a call this morning. Um, it was an intro call. And I said, I'm really happy to see your face and you have a beautiful smile. And this is amazing. But I'm going to ask you for a big favor. Can we do this 15 minutes video? And can I go walk outside for the next 45 and we're just going to be together. We're just going to be on the phone and we're going to keep on the conversation, the same thing. But you know what? It's sunny. It's beautiful. I need this because I have five other calls. And you know what? It is normal. It doesn't downgrade your productivity. So that's another topic, obviously. But I think I think we don't know all of the reasons whether, you know, naturally the women have stepped into a role that was their previous role, which was uh, when I say previous roles, like a couple generations ago when there was no questions on whether you were going to work or take care of the kids. The kids are home. You take care of the kids. There, there are a lot of dads who stepped up, so we don't want to make it general. We obviously have the data that there is a gap. I mean, we also know that there's benefits in closing that gap. For example, there are studies that suggest if you move from a single gender to a blended workplace, you're going to see gains of productivity upwards of 41%. There was another study that identified a significant underrepresentation of women in corporate boards and leadership positions. But the study also projected, and there have been actually empirical analysis as well to support if you change your board composition to include female representation, you can add, you know, upwards of six percentage points to the company's net margin, right? So there's there's actual numbers to support a benefit to the bottom line, which, as we know, organizations want to see that kind of growth. Now, that said, since we know all of these things, and you've written about this on about corporate objectives, about OKRs, how can leaders connect the dots here where they are starting to actively embed gender parity as part of their central goals that will affect policies and practices as they manage the post-pandemic recovery? Like, how do they do this? What are some strategies that you think would be benefit leadership teams to, to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak? I mean, it's not a problem of not having talent available, right? So the question is, why not? Why Why wouldn't they? And why wouldn't it work? Somebody told me this morning, the power of questions is so much more important than the power of telling people how what to do. Mm. So if there's no, like you say, if they want to, if they want to put their actions where their mouth is, it's just like, what is preventing them from doing so? And I, I can't come up with any any reason, but they might do. So let's say that they come with the reason and they say, yes, we want to invest. I think it, it would be really helpful to talk about like how, how you think about corporate objective creation, because you describe a, a, a nice framework called the value pyramid. Can you kind of 
walk us through the steps of, of what that looks like. And then maybe we can even add in an example for our listeners on, okay, let's say that, you know, gender parity is something that you want to enact. Like this is how it affects these three dimensions. I think you put forth the dimensions that most corporations, actually any company really is thinking about. Can you walk us through the, the, the value pyramid? Yeah. So the value pyramid is not something that I that I invented. It's something that was actually ordered to Harvard, if I recall, um, as a Harvard study to understand how to grab the attention of CIOs at the time. And what they said was they would, um, you know, it's just the origins of the trusted advisor and the consultative selling. And so instead of pushing your product, you've made some research about me. So technically, the value pyramid was something that you would do about a prospect. Recently, by interacting with startups, I've just figured out that, you know, because startups, they don't have an annual report. Mm-hmm. So what when, when, when you're looking at, you know, you're looking at a bank, you're looking at a telco company, you get the annual report, you get the press release. It's, it's quite the a 10K. public mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a public company. So you get a feel and you can construct and build that value pyramid quite easily if you have the structured mind for it. Now, what I figured out is that when I ask, because for me, it was pretty helpful to understand the strategies of their startup and where the structure was like, Let's try to do your value pyramid. I would walk the people through it. And I just figured out that this framework, as you put it, didn't exist in any sorts of form. So it's actually, uh, I have to talk about OKRs here because a lot of, a lot of these conversation came up from what the hell is this OKR for? Uh, you know, like, what is this related to? How does this align with other departments? How does this even align with the top leadership business strategy? So instead of like t- like telling your people to figure out what the OKRs for the quarter should be, tell them what the objective of the company for this year is. And so help them align. And so one of the things that I ask them is like, what is your corporate objective? So when you talk to startups and scale up, the corporate objective, it's always financial, but it's mostly revenue. It's quite easy when it comes to startups and scale ups, right? So it's always like revenue. When you talk to bigger companies, there might be some like costs um, issues that you want to, 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 you know, if you're going IPO, you want to cut down the cost. And that might be very important that expenses are, are controlled. Uh, or if you're going IPO as well, or if you just IPO, it's like reputation. You want to maintain your reputation. You want to avoid risks so your your stock doesn't plunge, right? But when you're early on, it's always about revenue. Now, what at- when you attach to one of these things, right? Uh, increase the revenue or uh, control the cost, or as I mentioned, reputation, you have to have the business strategies that come to support this corporate objective. And the corporate objective is really the true north, the true north of the company. It is, if you see anybody, anybody in the company, no matter their role, whether they're a developer, whether they're a salesperson, whether they're in marketing, whether they're just like the intern who got hired to do uh, some, you know, coffee or whatever everybody knows the corporate objective it has to be known public owned 
And from the corporate objective, you're going to define business strategies. And those business strategies don't attach separately. Say, you're not going to give a business strategy to the developers and a business strategy to the sales and a business strategy to the marketing. You're going to have business strategy that are going to englobe those departments that make sense for everyone. And then from those business strategies, the departments are going to create initiatives and they will own those initiatives. Now, from those initiatives, this is where the OKRs come from. But if you don't have, if, if nobody's done the work, if the leadership has, done, has not done the work, how do you expect people to know what they should do? That's where the cows of the startups and scale-up come. It's a big mess. So if you want diversity and inclusion to support the reputation of your company, to support the performance of your company, to support the revenue, then it has to be in the business strategy. Something that I really was curious about, because I read your piece on OKR specifically, you you mentioned in that piece, OKRs are adored by some and disliked by others. I think that's very clear. There seems to be a very polarized response when an OKR program is going to get rolled out. Now, from per- your experience, like what would you consider things that contribute to OKR program success? Because that's what people want is to be successful as they're doing this. What are kind of the requisite or the necessary things that contribute to that success? Would you be okay for me to start with um, a bad experience that I had with OKRs first? 100%. (laughs) 100%. I'm not going to name the company in which OKRs were deployed, but I did have a leadership role and I had to ask my people to come up with OKRs that I would be monitoring them on for the quarter. And there was no, we didn't know what it was. We had like, it was just like, it was not attached to anything. Just like, oh, pick some objectives and we're going to measure yourself on. Well, what do you need to improve? Oh, you're not doing enough enough new logos. Well, okay, that can be your OKR for this quarter. That was so individual and so specifically individual without attaching it to any initiatives of my department that I think I had a lot of frustrations for my people and I didn't even know how to conduct those meetings. Now... I think that I talk about the value pyramid and, and, and it could be anything else. But as long as you have a structured that ha- where you can see the top, right? So now that I've said the bad experience, I would say like, how, how do I see OKR now? And this is basically what I do with my customers. Like, just stop deploying OKRs if you don't have your, your house in order. Like, you, you can't ask your people to come up with objectives that if you don't even know yours. So get your house in order. And then it will like it, it will be meaningful and you will have a good experience. So I think this this triangle that we just talked about, the value pyramid, is really just a foundation of getting your house in order um, before making this ultra personalized and individual responsibility to pick your OKRs. And managers will be much more comfortable. By, because they're going to, managers are by definition, first-line managers, they're by definition hated by everyone because you're Aww. in the middle of hmm. well, And, you know, it's not hated, but it, it's not a, like, you know, you're not in the leadership decision and you're like, right. your people, they're never happy, you know. They always have something that is not going right. It's like you have like, you know, so 
you're not hated, but you're you're taking a lot of complaint from a lot of people. Like you're from both you're, sides. Exactly. Right. So so I think if if it facilitates that first line manager role to really understand what's going up, what's going on up in the leadership discussions. So it feels like okay, I'm attaching to what my leadership is going to to do. And then really can it be the translator of this, the leadership and what it means to do individual. So like communicate on those initiatives and community, like h- how do you think you personally can attach to this initiative? What can you do? Well, you know what, if we had diversity and diversity is a business strategy, I'm going back to that because, you know, that was the beginning of our conversations. Diversity and inclusion is part of the business strategy and um, as an initiative my bosses are asking me to look into recruiting more like with more diversity and then what would my sales do you can source differently so individually you can contribute by doing recommendation that are different from what you'd ha- you would normally do you can do rec- so. What what would the HR department? Well, cha- change the onboarding program. What does it mean? Okay, we need to change the onboarding program. This is the initiatives. What does it mean for the people who are writing the on- onboarding program? Get testimonials. Uh, build up something. Okay, we need to get testimonials for people that have been onboarded. What are their struggles? What what they would have liked differently? Um, yeah, there are tons of things, but you want people to feel that they're contributing to something bigger. Hmm. That's how I feel that it works. That makes a lot of sense. I think what you're kind of honing in on is people do want to have that sense of purpose at work. People really want to feel like they have that ownership. And I don't know how many times I've heard people say, Jenny, like, what I really want is just, you know, what am I doing to make an impact? They use that word impact. Exactly. the more that we can enable uh, the people who work with us that we employ to know that this is what they can own, that this is how they can contribute, that they can make impact, we surmise that they will be more engaged with their work. They will be happier in their workplace. And something that I shared with my peers recently is it goes beyond you were able to like keep your employees this is a flywheel moving forward where they may invite others in their networks to say, I have a great employer. Have you thought about working for us? And this war on talent, I think that we keep talking about this fight for talent. It's not that it gets easier, but you have another means to attack it, right? Because your employees are actually actively promoting your organization and you know employment with your organization for you. And that's a wonderful marketing tactic if you've never thought about it so that you can tap into as a result of all the aforementioned, I think. No, I, I like the word impact. And I think, you know, uh, when you deploy an OKR and you don't have that sense of impact and that sense of a major difference, um, it automatically falls into I am measured on something and it it. It adds on pressure instead of doing something positive. So, and I think that's that that was the experience that we had. It, it was just like adding on pressure. Hmm. The way that I've been thinking about it recently is that it's like you know reflecting on past performance versus looking forward for growth opportunity. 
And and that's a difference in mindset, I think, is when we're in a performative environment and people don't feel like they're making that impact, then do people, in fact, I think, do kind of feel like they're on the produ- like old school production floor. I just need to produce. And most people today don't want to go to work, especially with knowledge workers. They don't want to come to work and just have to produce. They want to actually say, hey, this is what I changed. This is what I helped establish. That feels good, you know, and they'll want to do it again. Now, we're going to wrap up with some quick fire questions if you're open to it. There, there were some tough questions already. <laughs> you did a fabulous job. I've learned so much already. So first is, like, what's your dream? And if you have an associated deadline with it, most people don't, what would that be? My dream is to be capable of being 100% all the time in the present. Mm. True happiness is to manage to not be thinking about what's happening next or tomorrow or just like thinking, oh, I wish I would be tonight or I'm looking forward to next week when I'm going to be meeting with my friends or, oh, it was so good last year when we were on vacation, but really just be 100% all the time in the present. And that's so hard to do. It definitely is. (laughs) See that one coming. (laughs) I, I try to meditate every day and I find difficulty even trying to be present in my meditation practice. So I can, that I felt that. The second question, what do you appreciate most about being able to run your own business? Exactly what we just said before, having an impact that makes my day every day. It's just like, it, it's seeing the impact is just like, it's super rewarding, super rewarding. And just being able to do everything I want. Um, no, no boxes, no limitation. If I have a creative idea, if I want to tell a CPO he's going the wrong route, if I want to tell a CEO he should do this integration, I can. And I love that. There's something that uh, I've been reading. I've, I've been reading up on Deming kind of because I'm trying to think about what theories are, have shaped kind of the knowledge economy And Deming suggested that the greatest route for innovation is freedom. That really impacted me just reading. I mean, this is the foremost thought leader for a lot of people. They probably associate with him with total quality management and the 14 principles, but his prevailing knowledge theories are rooted in if you give people freedom, they will innovate. Startups and scale-ups don't give that freedom. And corporation, either people are, are uh, stuck in roles and um, if they want to step out of that role to make an impact, they're often told to go back to where they belong. So the last question, you're an author. I mentioned at the very beginning that you wrote this wonderful book called Popcorn for the New CEO. And as you put it, It's got the snackable content and business insights of 300 office hours with C-level executives from B2B European startups and scale-ups. That said, as you conducted your research for your book, what was like the most surprising insight you discovered? I think it was like a personal insight. Like I had all it, I had all of this in me. It was like, what? That the insight of, you know, like, uh, it was like, oh, I have people struggling and sharing their struggle and I can come up with answers. And I think that was like the haha moment was like, oh, I had all of this in me and 
maybe I have even more. So let's go get it. (laughs) And so uppercut first became a thing, I would imagine, like, or at least more of a thing, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, I never had trouble since I started the company to find clients, but I had a really busy January and February for sure because the book has uh, has sparked some curiosity and uh, and positive impact on branding. So I'm I'm now having access to bigger scale ups um, that might not have given me the keys of their transformation before. So. You certainly sound like you've practiced what you've preached. And I think that's awesome and an inspiration for me. Thank you so much for being on this show today. I have absolutely enjoyed this conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com slash radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.